0: It has already been a blessed occasion, it has brought us together so many things already. The songs we've sung are so uplifting and encouraging. The prayer in which we've engaged together. The opportunity of sharing our faith in the sense of encouragement of each other. It really has been meaningful and already been such a significant and important thing. As you may have noted in the bulletin, we're going to give some thought to questions and answers this evening. Our November edition of that particular matter we chose to begin a number of years ago now. And it seems as though again, we'll continue that into the coming year so long as the questions are those which continue to be things that you ask and have an interest in, we'll try to continue to do this in the year 2024 as well. Tonight we have a a few questions on, on our docket for consideration as usual. I like to begin our particular study by reminding us that the whole reason for these questions really surrounds matters that's on this next slide that you might now consider. The Bible is filled with questions. There are over 2,000 questions in the Bible. And so it's an interesting matter to notice that God uses the issue of questions to often teach amazing truths. And so your questions are useful, they're important, they're vital. And we're going to operate on the premise tonight, as usual, that this book has something special about it it does afford answers to many of the questions that you and I might well be in position to ask. And so tonight, without any further delay, why don't we give our thought to this first question. And it reads identically as follows. Are the Israelites God's chosen people today? I don't don't again know who asked any of these questions, but the person has asked, are the Israelites God's chosen people today? You might be well aware that there's currently a conflict raging in the Middle Eastern part of our world in which Israel is one of the combatants in that war. And you may well be aware that there's a tremendous interest, sometimes biblical in character, connected to the promises that relate to the territory that is the land of Israel. Even our own country, the government thereof, is under the impression that there are biblical matters connected to this. Question again. Are the Israelites God's chosen people today? As you begin to look at that slide that's now before you, could I invite you to consider a few of the things that might well be noted? First of all, Brother Dennis read from Deuteronomy 7, verse number 6. If I again read that in our hearing, I hope that we would immediately appreciate this truth. For thou art an holy people, God said, unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the nations, above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. It's true that at Mount Sinai, and even in the days prior to that, God had selected Abraham. And in particular, in Genesis 12, had promised him that of his seed there would come to be a great nation. And you notice that by the fruition here of Deuteronomy 7 that had come to pass, the children of Israel had been in Egyptian bondage, they had been brought out with a mighty hand, and they numbered rather significantly. But did you notice? God chose them. He handpicked them. He selected them. And they were to be a special people to himself. It thus is a fair question to ask, is that still true? Is it still the case that the group of people that are descended and that have direct connection to the land of Israel would be such that they're special, they're chosen, they're God's people? On that slide, that was just the first verse. We need to give thought to some additional ones, perhaps like this. It is entirely true that to be a selected or chosen person in the sight of God is such that that comes with responsibilities. And it comes with blessings. It comes with obligations. And so needless to say, the children of Israel the Old Testament era were such that God expected some things of them. You and I remember they failed in that light. They often found themselves in the book of Judges, the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, just to name a few. They found themselves on the short end then of God's judgment, meaning that they had failed. And in 2 Chronicles 36, God directly said, Because of your iniquities, you will now suffer the matters connected to the captivity in Babylon. To say all that is to say this. The Jews were privileged people. Under the Old Testament era, they were given the oracles of God. Romans 3 verse 2. Paul directly told that to the Roman church. The Jews, those that were Hebrews, you see, they had been given the oracles of God, and thus they were given a degree of knowledge and information connected to what God expected that was not as quickly disseminated to all the other nations of the earth. But shouldn't we now be quick to say this? That Old Testament, of course, was nailed to the cross. That old system, the law of Moses, is not the law beneath which we live today. The Apostle Paul, in fact devotes a fair amount of the book of Galatians to explaining that point. That law is not the law beneath which we serve today. In fact he would say in Galatians 5 verse 4 you who are under the law you are severed from Christ. You see the, the Christian system is a universal system. The Christian system is not directed to a particular clan of people. It's not directed to a particular earthly family of people. No wonder in that light you notice the following in Matthew 28, verses 18 and following. Jesus himself speaking. After his own resurrection, he said, All power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. Those are the key words, really, in the entire book of Matthew. The marching orders relative to the matter of Christianity. It's a universal system, not directed to, say, one country or one particular arrangement of territory on the planet. In John chapter 4, God would say, Anybody, anywhere, in any place that worships God in truth and in spirit is acceptable to him. Thus, you and I need to understand, and oh so sweet it is, that God's family today is not those who, quote, are literally connected to the land of Israel. But his family today is the church. How powerful was that asserted in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15? But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the God of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And thus there the household of faith, the household of God, is directly connected to and equated to the nature of the church of our Lord. Who is it then that is God's chosen people today? It's the church. It is the blessed, blood-bought body of Christ. I would say that's also that which leads us to note this. When you think about the concept then of the family of God, in John 1, verses 12 and 13, you and I might easily remember that through the blood, the agency of the blood of Christ, we have the opportunity to be a part of that family of God. And oh, what a great family it is. It is. But notice, it's not connected to that old Israel off which Jacob was the reminder. It's connected to Jesus as the reminder. And then finally, this observation might well be in order. Wasn't it true that to that same Roman church, Paul would say in Romans 8 verse 14, We, Christians, are sons of God because we're led by the Spirit of God. Now that truth and that presentation was direct and powerful but you might remember to whom that was written. The church in Rome was not made up of those that only were Jews. Oh, it's true, there were some there that had been Jews, and later in Romans 15, Paul will highlight that they had been melded together with the Gentiles into one family, into one household of God. And so isn't it true that as far as answering directly our question, are those of literal, physical Israel? God's chosen people today? Well, no, they're not. But is it true that God's spiritual Israel is His chosen people today? That's true. Because isn't it amazing and isn't it interesting that in Galatians 6 verse 16, the church, you and I, are called the Israel of God. We are God's Israel today. We are the ones that have power with God, which is what the word Israel means. And just as it was in the Old Testament, the literal descendants of Abraham those that had power with god you and i are the ones today that enjoy that blessing and that enjoy the circumstances surrounding that as we close this opening question we've attempted to give then a consideration to this part of israel but let's move on to our second question of the evening question number two is playing the stock market the same as buying a lottery ticket are both of them gambling? Are both of them gambling? And so, would it be a sinful enterprise to have investment in the stock market? Is that the same as gambling? That's a good question. And it's a fair question. And it's one that you and I will take a moment to turn and give some biblical consideration to. First of all, I think it wise to begin with a definition what is gambling? I think it has by and large come to be the case that gambling is so prevalent and so common that many never even give much of a passing thought to it anymore. There was a time when gambling was sufficiently novel and new that there were forces that would rise up against it. And you would often hear remarks on radio or in other places as to the evil connected to it. But by and large, that doesn't seem to happen as much anymore. Isn't it true the floodgates opened gambling came to be the norm and now it's everywhere at this point what's the definition by definition gambling is an activity in which money or property is risked in an artificially created game of chance so there's an artificially created game that basically involves nothing more than chance and then when there's investment in light of that enterprise be it an investment of money an investment of objects, an investment of personally owned property, that then becomes gambling. As you can well tell then, there's a distinction to be made and sometimes you will hear the argument made, look, is it everything in life a gamble? It's certainly true that you may well leave your house in the morning and you may be involved in an accident before you get to work. That could be. Some are then quick to say, is it everything in life a gamble? Isn't a farmer Didn't he deal in the gambling business? He doesn't know if a hailstorm will come. He doesn't know if there may be a drought in the summer. He doesn't know if a flood may arise and destroy the entirety of his crop. Wasn't it a gamble for him to put the seed in the ground? May I ask all of us to remember, those things are not gambling. That's life. It's a part of living in this uncertainty connected to matters that transpire on earth due to the physical laws of God's universe, or the choices of others. But it's not gambling. That's not an artificially created game of chance. With that definition in mind, look with me at some further things that you and I might then well note. First of all, we could give some degree of emphasis to at least three of the matters of that definition. First, there's the involvement of physical entities that are invested or wagered in light of this secondly there's the matters that it is an artificial risk and finally you'll notice it involves a game we are talking about the matters of life but with all of that could we not then add the following gambling as you and I see its definition is condemned in the Bible that is not something that God would endorse it's not something he approves and in fact he stamps a rather strong note of disapproval upon it There are at least several reasons as to why that could be stated. I've just briefly chosen to list some of them for you. You and I could talk about these at some degree of length, but I think the points alone and the verses that we mentioned will be sufficient to make the idea first. Gambling is poor stewardship. It is to take that which God has blessed you and me with and to in fact choose to invest it in this way in which there is almost no likelihood of return in that poor stewardship surely no person of wisdom in the light of the verses I would now ask you to appreciate would think that that's a healthy way of doing things the earth is the Lord's of the fullness thereof Proverbs Psalm 24 verse number 1 that's quoted verbatim in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the heart of the New Testament Isn't it interesting though in that light you and I can think of it this way Jesus spoke about a one-talent man in Matthew chapter 25. and As he did so, this person merely returned back what he had been given and that wasn't good enough. More was required, more was expected. If you and I choose to invest a dollar, more or less, in gambling, and we all know that the odds of the house winning are overwhelming, the odds of you and me winning are virtually nothing. Do you think that that's wise, good stewardship? To that might we add this observation. Isn't it true that in every aspect of the word that gambling encourages or at least has the affiliation with covetousness and the pursuit of what is involved in greed? Now the Bible condemns those on many verses and occasions. Jesus himself said in Matthew six twenty-four that when it comes to the mammon of men, You and I can't serve two masters. Either we'll serve the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven, or we'll serve mammon. But it cannot be either way. It cannot be both. To that might we add that text in Romans 13, 14, where Paul encouraged one and all to put off the choosings and the pursuit of that which is covetousness. It might well be in those lights. We could add another factor of consideration what about the work ethic idea you and i know very well that god says if a man won't work he ought not eat second thessalonians three isn't it true that the whole issue of gambling is to acquire the capacity to not work that i will have a whole host and a horde of blessings financially and monetarily such that i do not need to do this it really works against the very fabric of God's system of return on investment. But it's not God's investment. And it's not the desire of return that He, in fact, placed before us. As you look at some of the other verses at the top of that slide, I've called your attention texts such as Proverbs 12, verse 11. Even in the Old Testament era, and let's face it, Solomon was a very wealthy man. By by inspiration, he highlighted the integrity connected to the work ethic that is pleasing unto God. In the next point, what about the view toward others which gambling encourages? I said that correctly. The view that one has toward others. In gambling, I want to take what belongs to you and give it to me. You see, it's not by issue to give anything to you. I want to take what you've got. And I want to, in fact, make it my own. Isn't that the purview? Isn't that the basis for gambling? You may notice again some of the verses that I would ask you to highlight in terms of the exploitation that is the issue of gambling. One thing to notice certainly would be Amos 8 verse 4. In the Old Testament era, that premise was identically said to be wrong. You take from that which is of others and you, in fact, desire to make it your own, and the prophet Amos directly said, God will have nothing to do with this. In fact, he will judge you in light of that pursuit. In regard to the work of Amos, Jesus said it like this in Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. God's viewpoint is very different to this. It's not one of exploiting others. I seek to be helpful to others in light of not only example, but the directness of what God would allow me to share. Someone somewhat interesting then to see how that gambling works against many of these particulars of the Word of God. Let's add another one to this. Evil company? May I ask, what is it that's associated with gambling? When you think about other realities of life, other realities of circumstance. Those that go hand in hand with gambling certainly are recognized as bad. What about addiction? Don't you think it odd that these radio commercials that advertise the Tennessee lottery, when the commercial ends, they'll in fact urge one and all if you have a problem with gambling, call this phone number. There are those to help you. Is there not a danger connected to this? If you need a phone number that allows you to give some thought to the possible matter of addiction in this this way, certainly one could appreciate that there is some evil connected to it very strongly. Some of those verses at the bottom then bring us to note this. Ye shall know them by their fruits, Matthew seven fifteen. When you appreciate what goes hand in hand with gambling, and that would include poverty... It would include families who are destitute because dad wagered away that particular week's wages. You begin to see then a number of things that happen that have such destructive force. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22, Paul said, Abstain from every appearance of evil. As you and I close that particular slide, we've said much that takes us back, I suppose, to the question, But let's list this last reason. Gambling fails to honor the God of heaven. When you go to the particular store and you notice the rack of lottery tickets you can purchase, you don't see anywhere on that any Bible verses that glorify God. You don't see any verses of Scripture that encourage one to give thought to one's wise investment of the resources God has given you. None of that's going to be there what you'll find is a rather colorful display that encourages you to enjoy fun in an instant, to highlight the gratification of the moment. The Bible encourages all of us to be those of self-control and temperance, those who recognize the need to be good stewards of what we've been given. With all of that as a bit of a thought and enterprise, we could say gambling is sinful. But it would certainly seem that investing in the stock market is not gambling it doesn't meet that definition that you and I listed at the beginning of this consideration why might we want to say it that way first the stock market is not an artificially created game of chance it is an investment of things and by the way couldn't we be quick to say that when you invest in the stock market you own something you own part of a company Whatever those stocks are invested in, you own that particular portion, that component of that company. You do have something. You have not given away what you have in the interest of no return. I suppose in that light, that ownership would lead me to comment from Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, that Jesus, it seems, told a parable in which that very idea seems to have connection to the reality of one's own personal choice and how one makes these investments. May I say, it would seem to me that the Bible would not equate stock market participation to gambling. Gambling, again, is a different definition. It is not the same. And that close to question number two. It brings us to question number three. Another very good question has been asked of us this evening. And it is this one. Should a woman be president of the United States, since a woman is not to rule over a man? To be a president, you rule over households, of which you are then ruling over men. Interesting question. We know that certainly every four years we have a presidential election, and sometimes there is a woman on the ballot. Is it true that the Bible would have things to say about that being wrong? The person is asking it very, very well. Should a woman be president since a woman is not to rule over a man? There are many things that should be said, it would seem to me, in relationship to that question and its answer. I've tried to do that briefly this way. First of all, couldn't we agree to the following? There are many examples worldwide of a female, of a woman, that is the ruling person in the government of that country. You might remember only last year the Queen of England died, and she was the ruling monarch of Great Britain, wasn't she? You could easily think of other examples sometimes in nations such as in the Middle Eastern part of the world or in the far eastern part, really is what I should have said. But in those places, you sometimes are aware of the fact that a female may well be the person with the charge of that country. You might recall the Queen of Sheba in First Kings chapter ten but at least for this moment that that question takes us to this observation what about this verse to which the person has turned their attention you may notice on that slide we ought never lose sight of the fact there is a heaven dictated hierarchy you may wish to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 and we shall notice together the wording of verse number 3 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse number 3 In that place, you and I encounter this passage. In direction of that church at Corinth, we read, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. It doesn't matter what particulars of time may come to pass. It doesn't matter what the particular culture may be. The hierarchy that has been set before us in that passage is absolute. It is that which is consistent with the matters of God. And you and I might again notice somewhat of that which it has to say. First of all, the head of Christ is God. You and I so often think about the Godhead and there's God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we remember the integrity connected to the work of each one and the deity of each one. But you and I should notice based on a text such as this one that there is something to be said about the Son. The head of Christ is God. Now by the time Paul wrote this, Christ had already ascended back to heaven. And yet it was still true that there was a sense in which the Father is above the Son. Jesus is subservient to him and may I point out to you it would seem that that took place in light of Christ's voluntary coming to this planet, when He took upon Himself the form of a man, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, and when He thus subjugated Himself to the will of the Father in that regard, it would seem that that was a permanent enterprise, that it did not return to the former status He had before He came to this earth. And if that be true, doesn't that give you and me An exalted view of how much Jesus loved us that he was willing to forfeit the nature of that reality from that point forward that you and I might have an opportunity to be saved as you keep that in mind that was only one of the three affirmations of the verse it went on to say this the head of every man is Christ may I point out to you that is not restricted to Christian men That's every man, regardless where he is, what country he's in. That's every man. And then it says this, The head of every woman is the man. That again is every woman everywhere. Now the point that should be made in that is we aren't merely connecting ourselves then to a discussion connected to the church. Oh, it's true that there are roles in the church and there are certain things that God doesn't permit a woman to do But this is much broader than that. This is in every aspect of society, every aspect of existence. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Now, given that hierarchy, that leads us to its application. What then does that mean for the question that's been asked? And what does that mean for our discussion related to it? And frankly, that gets somewhat complicated. I will try to do what it seems to me the wisest of appreciations. But if you have further questions, maybe we can have an additional discussion about this at some point. Could I point out that there's a verse that the person mentioned who asked this question. May I read it again? Should a woman be president since a woman is not to rule over man? You may want to be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. The verse that the person referenced in the writing of the question is 1 Timothy 2 verse number 12 let's read that and see if that connection and its context will at least point us in a way of some consideration i'll begin reading in verse 11 let the woman learn in silence with all subjection but i suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence and there you'll notice the phraseology to rule over man is the very one that was mentioned in the wording of our question So as you and I then take 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, does that then say that it would not be right for a woman to be president? Can I point out that in light of the verse you and I just noted in 1 Corinthians 11, this is much broader than merely a consideration of the presidency. In fact, on the slide, I've asked you to notice that if you and I were to take that direct appreciation, it would eliminate a lot of things. Could a woman serve as the principal of a high school? She's obviously ruling over male teachers. Could a woman function as the manager of a business in which there are male employees? Could a woman invite a handyman to come to her house to fix the plumbing when she tells him what to fix and how to do it in terms of you know how to go about some of the things she requests? Could a woman hire a man to mow a yard? when she's giving him direction. She's telling him when to carry out the nature of that mowing enterprise, you see. It would seem to me the broader matter is much more than just the presidency. Could a woman serve as a governor? Some states have female governors. Could a woman serve, you see, as the CEO of a company? Could she serve as the head of a bank? Could she serve as a teacher? Could she teach math in high school? There's obviously some 17 or 18 year old boys in that classroom would it be okay for a woman to be their teacher I think we need to be a bit recognizing of the fact that it's a much larger question direct an application than just just than just the presidency but that does lead me to ask this as you look at that slide that's before you I think we need to be very dutiful and very careful as we give thought to this what is the context of this passage did Paul have in mind keeping a woman from teaching algebra in a high school math class? Is that the context? When Paul wrote 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, did he have in mind information about a woman asking a man to fix her plumbing, mow her yard, repair the drywall on her wall? The idea would seem to be that the context tells us this is nothing to do with that. Did you notice in 1 Timothy 2, Beginning in verse 5, it's a matter of the authority of Christ connected to the fact that he's the mediator between us and God. In verse 6, Paul beautifully presented the fact he had been commissioned to be a preacher of that truth. Then we arrive at verse 8, and he's talking about prayer. An exercise connected to spiritual dimension. He did point out that men are to lead the prayers in every place, And then he discusses female decorum, how a woman is to present herself. She's not to dress in an ostentatious way. She's not to dress in a way that would draw undue attention to things of a physical thrust. But she is to be governed by godliness. Her example, her demeanor, the tenor of her life is to direct people to a godly characteristic. And then immediately on the heels of that, we arrive at verses 10 and 11. The woman is to learn in silence. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. The context would appear to be directly connected to matters inside a public assembly of the church, in which we thus notice that it is not approved by God for a female to teach over a man in that particular setting. And thus, a woman to preach, a woman to serve as an elder, a woman to in fact otherwise teach the man is not something that ought to be done in the church due to this verse as well as the companion passage of 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 and following as you and I then revisit the particular text and question before us might we keep in mind that that sentence is not merely a recent one it goes back to Genesis 3 the third chapter of the Bible And thus, that has been a part of the very fabric of the issue since the days of the Garden of Eden. Now, that highlights for us a very strong connection to what God would have us to understand. Having said all of that, let's try to directly answer the question. Is it wrong for a woman to be president? I do not think that that verse would have direct recourse for the interpretation of that idea. In the same way, again, that she would not be in a position to serve as a bank president, as a teacher, as some other person who gives instructions in some sphere of life to a man. But in application to the church, it's rather rather clear. As you and I tried to, though, come back to that text we noticed back in 1 Corinthians 11.3, with it being said that the head of the woman is the man. If a woman does function in some sphere wherein she does have some measure of authority over a man. She needs to do so understanding the humility, understanding that the particular place that is hers is one that the Bible does at least describe in that passage. And she needs to do so with understanding and care. I might say, gentlemen, remember, our head is Christ. And so in every sphere of life, we need to be mindful of the fact that we should answer to His will answer to his specifications and give answer to the nature of what he has told us it is in that way that that question with this seem. i don't think it'd be wrong for a woman to serve as president but certainly she would need to do so with an understanding and also with an element of care as you close that particular question with me that's our third and final question of this evening as always feel free to put your questions in that little box there as you exit the auditorium and we'll try to give some thought in the month of December to some more questions involving questions and answers as we offer the invitation and close this particular lesson tonight it's something to appreciate that we first gave thought to Israelites and we use that to highlight that we as Christians are the Israel of God today that's a beautiful thought Our second question was, we gave impression as to the stock market, and that's not gambling. And finally, we reflected upon the nature of what the Word of God has to say about women and their opportunity on occasion to serve in various capacities of society. We found that the Word of God has much to say about the behavior of the church, but applying that in a much broader way does lead to problems. And you and I would always wish to be consistent. This evening, as we arrive at this point in our service time, if you have found yourself separated from God tonight in a way that's known to be public, then we would wish to offer this as an opportunity that you could come back to the loving side of Jesus. You could make an acknowledgement of sin. You could, in fact, utter and state your repentance of that, and we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. You realize that what an amazing opportunity that is. The second law of pardon ought never to be looked over as a trivial or unimportant thing. When you and I stumble and we fall and we find ourselves in a particular pattern of life, that can change. We are not stuck in that mire and in that particular location wherein we cannot change it. If tonight we at the Pippin congregation could be of help in that way, we want you to know that we're here. Brother Don has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of help to you in that regard, or perhaps in the becoming of Christian, Jesus in fact put in place this plan of salvation, and this plan is extended to one and all today. If you would be of a position to know that you have arrived at the point of knowing wrong from right, and you know that Jesus died for you, and you know about this plan of salvation, then you know it